Dr. Alan Leica here, and I'd like to welcome you to How to Live a Fantastic Life Show, where we will be discussing the important aspects of your life. We hope to inspire you to live the best life you can. Get out of your comfort zone and explore the awesome world around you. Break through your barriers. Take inspired action. Use the difficulties in your life to achieve the best version of you. Ladies and gentlemen, today we have a very special guest, Sharon Hart Green, who is a Canadian writer whose debut novel called Come Back For Me, University of Toronto Press, is a gripping story of trauma, loss, and the redemptive power of love. Come Back For Me was awarded the Firebird Award for Historical Fiction and was shortlisted for the Goth Fiction Award. It was chosen as an editor's choice book by the Historical Novel Society. The author holds a PhD in Judaic Studies from Brandeis University and has served as an associate professor of Hebrew and Yiddish literature at the University of Toronto. She has uh, published two previous nonfiction books, as well as short stories, translations, and book reviews. She was a popular speaker. Sorry, she is a popular speaker who has delivered talks throughout Canada, the United States, Great Britain, and Israel. Welcome, Sharon. Hi, thank you very much for having me on the show. Well, thank you for coming. It's always a pleasure. Now, let's go back a little bit. Have you always been a writer or did this something you, you moved into? Uh, that's a very good question because, um, no, I have not always been a writer, at least not always a writer of fiction. Um, I was an academic. I um was a professor for many years, and I was teaching literature. And after a while, I think what happened was I was teaching students how to understand and analyze and interpret literature. And it dawned on me that I really wanted to do it myself. I wanted to, to produce the literature rather than just interpreting it. So I started writing a little bit here and a little bit there. And before I knew it, I realized I was writing a novel. I didn't even realize it at first. It took me many years to produce that novel. I, I did it a little bit at a time while I was teaching. But it wasn't when, really wasn't until I stopped teaching. I took a break from teaching that enabled me to finish the novel. So, no, I wasn't always a writer, at least not always a writer of fiction. Well, you know, and I, I'm going to say this as a statement, and you can disagree with me if you want. You know, okay. being a professor at a university actually stifles create creativity. <laughs> it doesn't really allow creativity, at least not in the ways that we would consider it. I mean, you yes. know, to be a free-floating writer, anything is possible. To be a university professor, no, you think in narrow strains of crossing T's, dotting I's, getting the punctuation right, getting, am I being correct? Um, most people uh, today are finding that, yes. And uh, I definitely agree with you. Uh, it is becoming less possible 
to be completely yourself, to have your own opinions in the university. Um, Not only does it um, create an environment where you have to publish, uh, you know, a lot of material that isn't really related to creative thinking, but it's increasingly difficult to be a free thinker because of the constraints of the university these days. So, yes, I agree with you. You know, that wasn't really why I stopped teaching. I just needed a break. And um, it just was kind of fortuitous because it allowed me the freedom to finish the novel. And if I had continued teaching, I'm not sure if I ever would have. Well, and and there's a lot to be said for staying in your comfort zone. I, I mean, you're being paid, you're doing things, you have this regular schedule, uh, you interact well with teachers and students, otherwise yes. you wouldn't have been there that long. And That's there's this true. huge, there's this huge, huge comfort zone that you're in. That's true. And, you know, I really did enjoy interacting with the students. That was the greatest part of teaching, was feeling that you were having some sort of influence on their lives, you were helping open their minds to thinking in new ways. And I always taught in such a way that we had seminars rather than large lectures. I mean, I was teaching Hebrew and Yiddish literature. It attracted a small group of students. I'd have between 10 and 25 students in my classes. So they were conducted as seminars. And really, it allowed for wonderful conversations. And that was so fulfilling. I really enjoyed that part of it. It's just all the politics in university that I did not enjoy. So... And and no doubt there are politics and, and, you know, some of your best friends or some of your best enemies, they'd love to stick a knife in your back as much as very, yes, very true. Yes. And and it's a difficult environment. Uh, I, I, I found that throughout my academic career, how people are so smiling to your face, but behind your back, they're saying something totally different. Yes, yes. I mean, I, I know there are politics everywhere, but it's particularly, <laughs> particularly so in the academic world. Yeah. And sure. why that is, I don't really know. Maybe the well, stakes are so low. Well, one of my friends said it quite succinctly. Most people cannot espouse a higher tendency than jealousy. And, <laughs> you know, that that is the highest emotion that they can ever get to. So I, I think that's the best way to describe it. They just yes. can't get beyond that highest tendency. Yes. Well, I mean, it's something that the, was true in biblical times. And one of the, the commandments is not to covet and seems to be hardwired into our natures. Yeah, you know, I, and I think there's also the story of two two wolves, which I think is a, a Navajo Indian story of a good wolf and a bad wolf, and the one that wins is the one you feed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, yes, I, I'm sure that there are similar stories throughout all cultures. Yeah. So let's go into your book a little bit. And I want you to give me a synopsis of it because, you know, people won't read your book if they don't know what it's about. Okay, well, I'll tell you a little bit about it. There are really two plot lines that come together at a certain point in the novel. And the story is about two different individuals. One is a young man. He's very young. He's only 15. And he is. And his name is Arthur Mandelkorn. Okay. Arthur Mandelkorn, he's a young Hungarian Jewish boy, really. I mean, he's quite young. 
And he is um, in Hungary when the Nazis invade. And he and his sister attempt to escape together. But the sister and he are separated. And when the war ends, and most of the story is post-war, it really isn't, I, I wouldn't consider it a Holocaust novel because it really takes place mostly after the war. He's determined to find his sister and he goes on a long journey in search of her. And in the process, he falls in love. He um, goes through many um, traumas in his life. And I don't want to give away the plot, but he goes through a series of traumas and has to really rebuild his life after the war. He ends up in Israel and, um, and it is there where he manages to really start his life again. Now, Parallel with his story, and this is told in interchanging um, uh, uh, chapters, is the story of Susie Cohn. Now, Susie Cohn is a young Canadian girl who's also a teenager, but it takes, and her story takes place in the 60s, in the late 60s. And she comes from a family of Holocaust survivors who are also from Hungary. And but she lives a relatively placid life in Toronto, uh, where, you know, compared to the story of Arthur Mandelkorn, she really doesn't know much about about suffering and trauma. Talk Except, about juxtaposition there. Yes. Talk about juxtaposition. <laughs> it's really a very, very stark contrast between the two stories. And you wonder as you're reading it, and many readers have told me this, what is the connection? You can see that you know, there are some similarities in terms of you know, the background in Hungary, the Holocaust, etc. But she's a, a different generation. And she really doesn't know much about what her parents and her, her other relatives had endured. And the story begins with the death of her uncle, who had been almost like a father to her. And her, he dies suddenly. And it's in very suspicious circumstances. And no one will talk about it. No one will tell her what really happened. They just said he had a heart attack, but he was very young. She doesn't really, she just accepts that. And she, and it throws her entire family into this kind of chaos. And it leads her to, into behaviors that are not healthy for her. her. She becomes involved in a, a very, um, uh, unhappy relationship with a young man, a young musician. And it leads to all kinds of um, uh, consequences that were really unforeseen at the beginning, because really she didn't have any particular reason to feel that her life was was uh, really, um, you know, uh, her life had been, you know, delivered in any kind of um, unforeseen way. So those two stories and i'm trying to i'm trying to tell it without giving too much away that's oh, and why you I'm don't have to tell much more of it i'm but struggling two, a bit but the but two stories intertwined and they, they intertwine. interla- at the end they ultimately come to a resolution and they, they do ultimately and come the two to characters a, have a begin they begin to know each other and that circumstance i don't want to explain how that happens but no no but the important thing is they come to a resolution and they do come to a resolution and both of them go through a a kind of transformation both of these characters huge and and that's what i i think attracts people to a book like this it's it's not only about their growth it's about the reader's growth they go through 
when they read a story like this. Absolutely. They, what they, they live, learn from They it. live serendipitously through the characters. They That's live right. through the actions that go on there. And and I think that escape reading is something that a lot of people uh, do in this day and age. I mean, uh, yes. there's so much going on in people's worlds. They need to read. They need to get outside their lives. And they need uh, another thing to get into that world and understand that world. That's right. And it's enriching. It, it really isn't just educational, but it's enriching in terms of their their own perspective, their own understanding of the, what makes people behave the way they do and also how not to behave. So it, it's it's a life lesson in a way, I think, for for people to read fiction and understand the psychology of people and the consequences of people's actions. Yeah, this is what I call mini oh, mini psychotherapy people go through. Uh, yes. it's, they don't have to read the hard books. They can do it just by reading, uh, learning from how others are, go through it and things like that. So, uh, Yes, I mean, of course, some, some writers are wiser than others. So I would say to choose your authors carefully. <laughs> Uh, but I, I think you must choose your authors carefully. Uh, you know, if you do not choose, you'll be just at the throes of how the river pushes you and things like that. Yes, but, exactly. But yeah, I think I, I read profusely, so I read all sorts of different books. Some of them are just to entertain. Some yes. of them are to get a deeper meaning of life. Some of them are just to, uh, so some of them are part of my work and things like that. So I think all of that is is the importance of books for people. They have to, you know, I've always thought books to be a very fundamental part of people's lives. And I think books are essential for people to really understand their world and do more with it. Yes, I agree 100%. Now, let's go into the writing process a little bit. Okay. Uh, they say it's not hard to re uh, to write. All you have to do is slit your wrists and bleed. <laughs> <laughs> is that your experience? Uh, only occasionally. <laughs> I always find it hard to write, but once I get into the groove, then it starts to flow. It's very difficult to get into that groove though. And, um, I don't have a pattern. A lot of people ask me, oh, do you get up every morning and sit down and write? And I always say, no, I never do that. I can't do that. I I go through periods when I write a lot and other periods when I don't write at all. I find that I, I need to have that sort of, I, I need to be motivated and feel that the story is in my head and I have to be ready to write it. And when I do, it's often painful because you try to express yourself in a certain way and it does not always come out the way you want it to. So I, you know, struggle with it a lot. But yet, once I get past the struggle, then it's extremely fulfilling. Yeah, I, I find there's, there's nothing like it. I find there's periods of time when I flow and the words are magic and they come out. And I find yes. other times it's like pulling teeth. There's nothing yes. that I could do to make it happen. You know, I also find there's particular times of the day I'm better to write better than others, like oh, yes. early in the morning. Sometimes when I wake up at night, I, I find my muse is there and it literally writes better. But 
I find later in the day, it's very hard to put words onto paper and to really make it happen. And it's probably because all the things that happen in my day are, are polluting my brain enough that they're not <laughs> allowing the words to flow. Yes, it could be. Although it's funny, I'm the opposite. I tend to write at night. Yeah. I find that I'm a little sleepy in the morning. I don't feel that my brain is functioning at its fullest. Whereas in the evening, I feel that I'm more alert. And I find I often start to write at 10 o'clock at night. Well, and, and everybody has hours. Everybody has their own time frame. And I think they need to recognize that time frame. They really yes. need to recognize what's best for them. That's and that's right. how they can do it. And then let those opportunities happen. Don't fill up your late night with stuff if you know that's the time when you can actually write. You know, that's if it's right. if you're an early morning person, like me, don't fill up your early morning with a bunch of things in your schedule. Get to the typewriter and start typing and writing, because if you don't, you're missing those golden opportunities. And then there's another thing I think people should do is have a notepad by their bedside, because some yeah. of the best ideas come out at night. If you don't catch them right then and there, they're gone. Oh, absolutely. Often when you're not trying too hard, the ideas emerge. It's funny. I had that last night. I was struggling over a sentence. I couldn't get the, the wording exactly the way I wanted to. And then I decided, well, I'm going to sleep. I went upstairs and I was just about to go to sleep. And all of a sudden the sentence popped in my mind. Yeah. And I, I grabbed a piece of paper. I wrote it down and there it was Yeah. when I wasn't trying so hard. And I, I think that's the nature of creativity is that a lot of times it comes to you when you're not trying that hard. Yes, absolutely. But then the editing process takes over. And that's what I find, uh, you know, is so essential. Yes, you yeah. can write and get all your ideas on paper, but editing, perfecting, honing, that's, that's very onerous. But I do enjoy that, actually. Well, there's no such thing as good writing. There's only good rewriting. Yes, <laughs> very true. And that's you need how you a wrote. lot of it. You, you need a lot of it. And and it for myself, I've always found to have a good editor also work with me is oh, very absolutely. important. You need and, another pair of eyes, another set of ears, because you can't always judge what works by yourself. You need someone else and you have to be open to their criticism. That's what I always tell students and others um you have and to that's why i to find it's, it's good to have a good editor that doesn't destroy your words but enhances them I, right. I find the editors are of two types one is the one that underlines everything with a red marking pen destroys everything you've written and then puts it in the style that she or he wants yes and then yes. there's that's the other editor. type and then there's the other type of editor that really likes your words and just tries to make them better for you yes. and tries to put them in a proper way. And and I've always enjoyed the the second type, the first type I've hated. I know. I, I agree with you 100%. And you have to learn to distinguish between uh, valid criticism and, and invalid criticism, because there are those who will read your writing and we talk about jealousy or whatever, but they will just be vicious and will just criticize for the sake of criticizing and you have to steer clear of those types but there are those who you know will give you valid criticisms based on on a fair assessment and you have to be open to listening to them and you have to learn how to distinguish between those two because if you adhere to the words of those who are vicious and who you know try to destroy your writing 
you can end up never writing again. It saps your confidence and that's something you don't want to happen. Yeah. So Sharon Hartgreen, this show is called how to live a fantastic life show. Yes. How do you live a fantastic life, Sharon? Apart from my writing, I would say it's all family, family and community. Um, married, have three kids. And um, I, I feel like my world really revolves around my family. And that's given me that kind of stability, that, that hardcore. And um, I'm also very involved with the community where I live. And um, I feel that that is really essential for living a balanced life, that you're involved with other people, building something, um, not being isolated from what goes on around you, but being part of it. Cool. So to me, that's a key. So, family, so community. Yeah, family, community, and passion. That's are the yes. things that I'd say are, are very important to you. Yes. Now, the flip side of that question for our listeners, how would you recommend that they live a fantastic life? Perhaps they're caught in a job that they don't like any longer, or perhaps they're in a situation that they, like one of your characters, you know, what would yes. you recommend for them to transcend that, that the situation? Well, I think community is, is the, the, um, the entrance way, the path to finding um, a goal that's outside of yourself that if you involve yourself in your community in some way or find a community that you feel comfortable, I'm not just saying any community, but whether it's a neighborhood group or a church or a synagogue, some group that where you feel at home and where you can contribute. And to me, that helps in my own experience of what I've witnessed. And I think it's true for the main character in my novel, Arthur Mandelkorn, that part of the healing process has to do with his involvement in a larger cause. And that really helped him um, transcend some of the personal suffering that he endured in his own life. So to me, that's key. Of course, inter you can't always control your own family. You know, um, there are single people that just haven't been fortunate to meet their mate. And you can be out there with community and never meet someone, but you're more likely to if you go out and involve yourself. But you can't, it's, you can't wave a magic wand and make that happen. But you're more likely to meet someone if you share interests with others. So if you go out and find others who share your interests and work towards a cause that you believe in, you're more likely to meet someone and to be able to perhaps enlarge your family. Cool. Uh, what advice would you give a younger person, a younger version of yourself? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, I guess to, I guess I would say to find what really makes you happy in your life before settling for second best. Um, you know, I, for many years was involved with the arts community. I mean, this was when I was a teenager. I was very involved with the artistic community in, in Toronto. I was involved in music and theater. And that was before I, I even was in university. I was quite young. 
but I was quite unhappy. I, I had this idealized picture of the, because I was always artistically inclined, I had this idealized picture of the artistic world as being sensitive and compassionate. And I found that it wasn't so. And I felt I was really was unfulfilled. And I was also intellectually unfulfilled. So I ended up going to university, leaving that arts world behind. And that took a lot of courage. And I think what I would say to young people is don't settle just because you think you should be happy with a particular group of people or a particular community of people, you think you should be happy with them. If you're not, look for something else. Find an, a way of exiting and finding another group or community that is um, perhaps more beneficial to you from all kinds of perspectives, whether, whether it's emotionally or intellectually. And I think that's what you've captured in your characters as well. I think to a certain extent, you have captured people that change. They go from one thing to another. Yes. And then they, and then at the end of it, there's a transformation that occurs because of all the things that they've gone through. Yes. That's, that's absolutely true. In the novel, um, especially, I mean, you see it in Susie Cohn and the kinds of decisions she made. I mean, it took her a lot to, see the error of her ways. But when she does pivot and, and change direction in her life, she realizes how wrong she had, how she had been fooling herself um, about what she thought she wanted. And once she made that decision and made that change, it wasn't always, it wasn't smooth sailing right from the beginning. But she realized that she had to make those changes in her life. It's always hard to change because you become very comfortable with what you know. But if you're not happy, you have to consider alternatives because otherwise you're stuck. Yeah. Well, Sharon Hartgreen, how can people get a copy of your book, Come Back for Me? Uh, well, it's available in bookstores. Um, it's also available online. Most people nowadays seem to order online. So it's in, uh, in Canada. If you're happening, happening to be listening in Canada, you can get it at, um, Chapters Indigo online or in some of the stores, depending on their stock. Uh, you can get it on Amazon. Uh, in the U.S., you can get it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Um, most of the major online bookstores have copies. So it's, um, it's available. It's also available as an ebook as well. Um, it came out uh, actually a, num- a few years ago as a, a, you know, as a paperback, but just recently it was also issued as an ebook. So in either version. Excellent. Well, thank you, Sharon, for spending this time with us. Uh, our time is over already. I can't believe it. It just flew by. It always does. I always yeah. find these conversations just amazing and it's it's just like having tea or coffee with a friend and it just goes by and flies by like crazy so thank you again for coming oh my pleasure was great great to meet you alan and to converse excellent well ladies and gentlemen uh, thank you for being here today thanks for spending time out of your busy world and spending some time with us If you like this, please check all my social media channels because there's a lot more information there and a lot more happening. And please be sure to check back often because we have a lot of interesting guests. I'm Dr. Alan Stephen Laika. Hope to talk to you soon. Bye for now. 
You've been listening to How to Live a Fantastic Life. Be sure and pick up a copy of Dr. Laika's book, The Secrets to Living a Fantastic Life, on Amazon.com. And you'll want to subscribe right here on this page so you don't miss a single episode. Have a fantastic day. 